1: This
2: is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you, broadcasting live from Shelter in Place, my home office in Portland. So Marjorie Taylor Greene and what she has to do with the fate and future of America. You know, I started this article out over at TomHartman.medium.com with a poster from 1956 from the Republican Party. It was actually Young Republicans Club and it was on Labor Day. And it's titled Young Republicans Salute Labor. America's free working men and women produce more and consume more than any other nation. Greatest prosperity in history without war. Over 66 million employed. Highest take-home pay in history. Greater job security. Less time lost because of strikes. Increased union membership best working conditions in history, Social Security expanded. And then at the very bottom it has two kind of headline call to actions. Attend your union meetings, exclamation mark, register and vote Republican. That was 1956. Those Republicans refer to themselves as uh, as the cloth coat Republicans, right, as Richard Nixon used that phrase when he lost the election to Jack Kennedy in one of his speeches. You know, you're not going to have a tricky dick to kick around. I believe it was all in that same speech. But when Nixon took over the GOP in 1968, he had decided, he had concluded that the unions were actually the enemies of the Republican Party. And that Eisenhower's embrace of unions, even though it got him elected in 1952, it got him re-elected in 1956, it led to the greatest and widest and most prosperous middle class in the history of the world, that it was a mistake. And the Republican Party really needed to be anti-union, that the unions were just not a good thing. But if you're going to reject union members, average working Americans, that was about a third of Americans at that time. If you're going to reject them as potential voters, who are you going to replace them with? Well, Nixon's idea was, let's bring in the racists from the South. He called it the Southern strategy. It was Lee Atwater's idea, or he laid out the details of it. And in 1968, I mean, this keep in mind, this was three years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in in 64 and 65. And... uh, there were a lot of white people in the South who were very upset that black people were going to have the, you know, the legal right to vote and that uh, you know, some forms of discrimination against them were illegal. And, and, of course, it was on the heels of the 1954 Brown v. Board decision by the Supreme Court that said that you know, it's no longer legal to have segregated schools. So all of this kind of came together in 68 when Nixon reinvented the Republican Party. as And he said, well, let's just bring in the white racists. And sure enough, it was enough to get him into the White House. Then Reagan came along. You know, it was Reagan's turn in 1980. The party was still a party of fat cats. They still didn't want unions. And, but, you know, there weren't enough white racists to get Reagan entirely elected. I mean, he reached out to the white racists, but there was this growing phenomenon on TV and those of you old enough to remember television in the 1980s, remember Jim Baker and Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and these these televangelists, these guys who literally became millionaires, in the case of Pat Robertson a billionaire, using Their nonprofit status on television, Billy Graham, now his son, has the heir to that fortune. Jerry Falwell, his son, the heir to that fortune. Um, These guys were making money hand over fist. It was a money machine, the televangelists. And so Reagan reached out to these guys and the the anti-abortion folks that they were starting to crank. Keep in mind, the Protestant evangelical movement, prior to 1980 was in favor of a woman's right to choose to have an abortion or not post 1981 as Reagan turned to the son of his vice president his vice president was George Herbert Walker Bush his vice president's son was a guy who had basically kind of kicked alcoholism by embracing evangelical christianity George W Bush and George W Bush put this coalition together and uh, you know and and as an added bonus in the anti-abortion bunch, they also got all the misogynists, all these you know men and a few women, you know a Phyllis Schlafly, who used to come on this program before she passed away. Um, you know, basically saying women should be you know barefoot and and pregnant. They, they should be serving their husbands, they should be making dinner, they shouldn't be in the workplace. so so Reagan pulled together that. Coalition, But even, even that was, you know, a tough one. I mean, you know, he had to commission uh, John Roberts, a young lawyer in the Justice Department at the time, to figure out how he could overturn Brown v. Board and, uh, and uh, Roe v. Wade without actually amending the Constitution. And, I, you know, I laid that all out in my book on the, uh, the Hidden History of the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. But even with Reagan's evangelicals and gun nuts and Nixon's racists, The Republican Party still couldn't win an election. In 2000, Jeb Bush had to throw 90,000 African Americans off the voting rolls in Florida in the months just before the election so that his brother George could get close enough that their daddy's friends on the U.S. Supreme Court, and I mean that very seriously, uh, several of the conservatives on the Supreme Court were very, very close friends of George Herbert Walker Bush, that their daddy's friends could put their their son, put George W. Bush, in, in the White House. So then Trump comes along and he says, OK, we've got to further expand the Republican coalition. So, you know, let's first of all, he lies. He says, we're going to give health care to everybody. We're going to raise taxes on rich people. We're going to bring a jobs home. he basically stole Bernie Sanders platform, but he was lying about it. Bernie was serious about it. But then he also, you know, said, well, let's bring in the conspiracy nuts, the fascists. And thus, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene in the U.S. House of Representatives. The Republican Party was presented with a choice, or at least the Republicans in the House were presented with a choice. Do you embrace crazed conspiracy theory fascists like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have openly advocated killing Democrats, among other things, and that you know the Jewish death rays from outer space started the California wildfires, and the 9-11 at the Pentagon didn't even happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you embrace that? Or does the party go back to Dwight Eisenhower and once again become a semi-rational party that can build a coalition with working class people and business? And it looks like they chose the crazy option. Now, this is going to be a a real major, you know, turning point, a decision point that the Republican Party is going to be facing going, you know, into the 2022 elections and the 2024 elections. And to a large extent, the fate and future of this country hangs in the balance because what we're watching is a political party, a major political party in the United States, much as Germany saw in 1931. We're watching a major political party turn fascist. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So how do you expect this to play out? What are your thoughts on this? What are you seeing and hearing in your own neighborhoods from Republicans? How are they responding You can find an absolutely fascinating library of my writings, including my daily rants, over at tomhartman.medium.com. But there's a few other things here that I wanted to share with you that are kind of newsworthy, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. The Government Accounting Accountability Office, the GAO. Has issued a shocking report about the Trump administration and literally hundreds of millions of missing dollars, missing federal dollars right now. We don't know where they went and we don't know what percentage of them went into Donald Trump's pockets or the pockets of his family or his cronies. It's just mind boggling. They they issued this 340 page report. They pull no punches. First of all, they said that basically Trump did everything he could to make the coronavirus epidemic worse. Now, that sounds like an indictment, you know, like something like negative. But actually, if you listen to what Trump said and what Dr. Scott Atlas said, his, you know, Fox News radiologist that he brought in to supervise the whole pandemic response, they were both saying the more people who get this, the better. And thus, here we are. That's why America, with 4% of the world's population, has literally one-quarter, 25% of the world's COVID cases. We have 21% of the world's deaths. We have slightly fewer deaths than COVID cases as a percentage, you know, because we've got reasonably good hospitals, but that's it, you know, compared to other countries in the world. The GAO also says that they are, quote, remain deeply troubled, end quote, That 31 recommendations that they made back in June and September to the Trump administration about how to deal with the pandemic, of those 31 recommendations, 27 of them at the time Trump left the White House had not even been seriously examined, much less implemented. That included... Things like getting PPE out to people, particularly hospitals, you know, speeding up the development of vaccines, developing a national plan to distribute and dose people with vaccines or whatever the appropriate phrase is. Getting medical supplies to the states that are having crises and Native American tribes as well, who are, by the way, dying at literally twice the rate of white people right now from COVID. Then they get into the money that the Small Business Administration passed out. They called this, uh, Steve Mnuchin had basically a secret trust fund, a slush fund, that, quote, creates the risk of considerable improper payments that could be related to fraud. You think? You know, $300 million from the CARES Act that was given to the Commerce Department, it's gone. They can only find $54 million of it. Where did the other 200 and, what 46 million go? Nobody knows. The Department of Labor passed out $1.1 billion in overpayments to unqualified businesses. We don't know how many of those are Trump cronies. The Small Business Administration, they passed out over 3,000 invalid loans. Again, we don't know how much of that went to Trump. So there's that. Just wanted to point you to that. Lindsey Graham, in his defense of Donald Trump in the Senate impeachment trial, is throwing out this racist trope against Kamala Harris. This is something that uh, started out, you know, it's basically uh, Tom Cotton tweeted this, and then Donald Trump recycled it and amplified it, which was basically that Kamala Harris was bailing out, well, this is what Lindsey Graham said, if you're going to pursue this, if you want to start calling witnesses, it would be fair to have Kamala Harris's tape played where she bailed people out of jail. He's talking about Black Lives Matter. Well, she didn't bail anybody out of jail. There is no tape. Lindsey Graham is lying through his teeth or, and or is recycling a lie being told frequently on right-wing hate radio and Fox so-called news. What, what Kamala Harris did do on June 1st, and this is only one week after George Floyd was murdered, this is before there was you know, a huge national protest movement. It was just beginning to start. She donated a, a little bit of money, I, I think it was a hundred bucks, um, or, or tweeted something positive about the Minnesota Freedom Fund. And none of that money actually went to bail out anyone charged with rioting or looting or anything else. I mean, this is, but hey, she's black, right? Just, so go after her, Lindsay. This is just like, you know, Kevin McCarthy. Oh yeah, let's go after Ilhan Omar and Maxine Waters, right? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's the racism, stupid. Anyhow, we'll be back with your calls right after this. Stick around. Our book today is Taking Bullets, Terrorism and Black Life in 21st Century America, Confronting White Nationalism, Supremacy, Privilege, Plutocracy and Oligarchy, a Poet's Representation and Challenge by Haki R. Madhuburi. This is from page 27, the chapter, Terror in the Midst of Prayer and Empire. He writes, In our perpetual state of national mourning, where our eyes are watered out and our hearts cease to heal at the rate the Creator meant them to, We hold hands in profound silence as we remember the Mother Emanuel nine of Charleston, South Carolina, those nine mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. Even before burying, before black earth covered their caskets, too many ministers, media pundits, and plain white and black folks downgraded the terror that quickened their deaths of our finest in this land to the mental illness and race hatred, in quotes, of a single young white man. He may have acted alone, but he was not alone in his thinking, encouragement, gathering of arms, warped consciousness, confirmation, or ahistorical views and yeses from the millions in the nation who proudly wear and display the Confederate flag above their hearts and fly it in all of its traitorous glory over a state capital and other institutions. Again, we find ourselves at war with history and culture, entertaining another call for a national conversation on race and a president weary of trying to make sense of and comfort the grief-stricken nation with words from the highest office of the land. This was written while Obama was president. These are the facts, not an opinion or the ignorant ranting of compromised preachers and television pundits. A 21-year-old white man, a citizen of South Carolina, walked into the sacred and spiritual home of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church of Charleston, the historic home of black liberation fighter Denmark Vesey, and fatally killed nine of its members, including the pastor, during Bible study. This was a pure act of domestic terrorism. A modern-day lynching by a young white nationalist who coolly and calmly assassinated nine black members of Mother Emanuel. Domestic violence and acts of terrorism are on the rise in the United States, as detailed by Charles Kurzman and Daniel Schanzer in their New York Times op-ed, The Other Threat, where they state that, quote, the main terrorist threat in the United States is not from violent Muslim extremists, but from right-wing extremists, end quote. In their national research, local police agencies across the country identified, quote, the militias, neo-Nazis, and sovereign citizens as the major threat the nation faces in regard to extremism, end quote. All of this is homegrown with international connections. Morris Dees and J. Richard Cohen of the Southern Poverty Law Center also writes in the New York Times article Racists Without Borders that, quote, Americans tend to view attacks like the mass murder in Charleston as isolated hate crimes, the work of a deranged racist or a group of zealots lashing out in anger unconnected to a broader movement. This view we can no longer afford to indulge. When, according to survivors, Mr. Roof told the victims at the prayer meeting that black people were, quote, taking over the country, he was expressing sentiments that unite white nationalists from the United States and Canada to Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Unlike those of the civil rights era, whose main goal was to maintain Jim Crow in the American South, today's white supremacists don't see borders. They see a white tribe under attack by people of color across the globe the end of white rule in rhodesia now zimbabwe and south africa they believe foreshadowed an apocalyptic future for all white people a white genocide that must be stopped before it's too late end of quote the internationalization of terrorism is not a foreign theory in today's social media world dees and cohen will be speaking at a conference in budapest about this transnational white supremacism that is emerging as the world grows more connected technologically The message of white genocide is spreading. Also, David J. Whitaker's terrorism, understanding the global threat, gives another view. Clearly, our rush to forgive this mass murderer within 96 hours of this supreme tragedy is misguided, anti-human, and does not allow for properly grieving the fallen. As perfectly scripted, displaying the permanent effectiveness of Christian acculturation on the Sunday, June 21, 2015 morning services of Mother Emanuel Church, the black Christians out-Christianed their white brothers and sisters. Before the morning sermon, the presiding elder, Reverend Norvell Goff, Sr., found it necessary to thank the local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies for doing their job. He also stated, quote, A lot of folks expected us to do something strange and break out in a riot. Well, they just don't know us. We are people of faith, end quote. I find this statement inappropriate, insensitive, and ahistorical, implying whether he meant it or not, that the recent uprising and rebellions in Ferguson, New York, Cleveland, and other parts of the nation were riots and did not include black people of faith, and that somehow they were strange in their social, political, and economic activism. Informed people do not riot against injustice or white terrorism. They study, organize, and strategically struggle at all levels, in the streets, on the campus, in front of the White House, and in corporate boardrooms. Dylan Roof stated his intentions were to start a race war, And informed black leadership understands that we cannot pray this away or appeal to any law enforcement agency that all across the country, including Charleston, has been seriously compromised. To label black reaction to murder, terrorism, deep unemployment, substandard housing, etc. as riot is to blame the victim. The book Taking Bullets. Welcome back, Tom Harvin Here with you. What I'm taking the position here that how the Republican Party deals with the crazies in their ranks, and they've been increasing the number of crazies and the types of crazies ever since Nixon decided that the GOP should turn its back on organized labor and instead embrace Southern white racists, and then they added the homophobes, and then they added the gun nuts, and then they added the TV evangelists, and then they added the anti-abortion people, and then and and then they and now they're adding. Conspiracy crazies, and I think if the GOP doesn't get its act together, having a major political party in the United States turn fascist, and fascism is very almost always grounded in bizarre conspiracy theories, reality gets turned upside down. It's one of the things that's a, a, a virtually a necessary precursor to fascism, then the united states is in deep trouble but anyhow let's let's talk about that russ in hickory hill illinois hey russ what's up
5: ah uh, yeah thanks for taking my call tom you know i'm tired of hearing. and i have to ask your opinion and jordan that we're trying to silence their freedom of speech first amendment so you're going to tell me that aoc can go on the floor omar from minnesota and say i like to do the same thing to mccarthy who should be wearing a dress after what he did i mean Jordan, I heard, what was it? Oh, he's not going to run for the Senate seat because Tim Ryan's winning. Oh, how sad is that, Tom? Tim Ryan wants to run for the Senate for the Democrats. They're crying about, oh, we're trying to take their freedom of speech. What would OAC or Omar do, Tom, if this was under the Trump administration?
2: yeah, I'm completely with you. And this is, you know, Lindsey Graham on the, in the Senate talking about how, well, you know, we're going to go after Kamala Harris because, uh, you know, she tweeted support for the Minnesota Freedom Fund. <laughs> it's like, really? Yeah, excellent. Well said. Thank you very much, Russ. Joyce in uh, McKinney, Texas. Hey, Joyce, what's on your mind?
1: Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I was just wondering if there's some way to establish a an accepted standard for what needs to be discussed in the halls of Congress because it's supposed to be a hall where you're having deliberative debates about how to move the country forward. And yet the Republicans are defending insanity in the QAnon people as an acceptable thing to discuss or or at least to believe. And pushing lies and encouraging these QAnon stuff shouldn't be accepted as a standard procedure in Congress. I agree.
2: I, I think the thing that we have to realize, and that was the essence, essentially, of the, the piece that I wrote and that I was talking about, is that the GOP has nothing to sell America. The Republican Party basically has nothing for the average American. They are there for the billionaires. They are there for the big corporations and the giant monopolies, period, full stop. Yeah, like, and right, in yeah. order to win elections, they have to bring in an increasingly large crowd of people who typically have been consigned to the margins of society, fulminating racists, open Nazis, misogynistic you know, women haters. (laughs) It's just uh, hustler preachers. And they're like running out of crazies to bring in to win elections. And so now they're bringing in people who would literally commit treason to try to steal elections and, and tried to do so on January 6th. And frankly, I think tried to do so on a number of occasions prior to that. What this is telling us is way bigger than just is Marjorie Taylor Green nuts, or should she be allowed to, you know, endorse the idea that Nancy Pelosi should be shot in the forehead? It is that the Republican Party to its core is absolutely corrupted by the decision that Richard Nixon made in 1968 that it was going to be exclusively the party of billionaires and big corporations, that they were no they were going to abandon. Uh, totally abandoned Dwight Eisenhower's support for labor unions and social security and things like that you know programs that actually help Americans you know in order to to get elected they had to bring in more and more of these crazies so uh, you know I think your point is really really well taken Joyce at what point does the House of Representatives say enough already this is our workplace in addition to you know uh, the largest deliberative body in the United States, I believe, and the oldest, along with the Senate, and where do they draw the lines? What what do they do? I think it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Joyce, thank you for the call. Donna in Decatur, Georgia. Hey, Donna, what's up?
4: Uh, hi, Tom. I'm calling because, you know, defending Marjorie Taylor's right to free speech Right now in Georgia, in response to the last two elections, there are these horrible bills being proposed. And, and I, you know, it's, it's just, I'm so bitter about it. I had to think like, what could I do? So yesterday I called that office, the Georgia ethics, uh, Senate ethics office. And I I also sent um, an email to the admin, just letting them know that I opposed it, but I, I still wasn't satisfied. And so I'm trying to get people to maybe help me with an effort. If you go on your library site, your library's website, I'm in DeKalb County, so I can go onto DeKalb County's website and pull up a research database. There's one that's called, it used to be called Reference USA, and it has the name and and information about all of the companies in the United States, and I can do a search that will show me all the companies in Georgia. And when I did that, I I got the largest companies, the ones that have like 5,000 or more employees. And I created Mm -hmm. a letter It's only about three sentences, you know, basically pointing out to the executive. Because on this database, you will get the name of the owner or the chairperson, the uh, address of the company, you know, all the details that you need to contact them. And so I uh, I sent letters to several of them this morning, and I said in my letter... Your the your employees are going to be inconvenienced and they're going to be disenfranchised by these bills because it's going to take them longer to vote and the ones that can't afford to spend the time in line they're going to wind up being dis, disenfranchised.
2: You're, you're talking I, about the legislation that the Georgia legislature is trying to pass right now to make it harder for people to vote in Georgia.
4: It's SB sixty eight sixty nine seventy seventy. Seventy-three. They're going to eliminate drop boxes, for example. They're going to press two pieces of ID. I mean, just crazy things that they're asking for, and it's all to prohibit us from voting. But um, when I in, in the letter that I did, I point out how those those employees of that company are going to be inconvenienced or disenfranchised, and I request mm-hmm. that. Companies withhold giving any funds, uh, election funds, to the campaigns of anybody who signs on uh, to that legislation. And I put in the names hmm. of uh, Senator Burns, who is the head of that uh, committee, the Senate Ethics Committee. He's the chair and then the vice chair, just for example. And I think we can, as citizens in Georgia, if we can let these companies know. A, there's gonna be an impact on their employees And B, um, they don't have to give. You know, I I think we need to let them know that we are looking at them. They should also be weighing in because it is going to affect people that work for these companies. You can't go to work if you have to stand in line, or you can't vote if you have to stand in line five, six, seven hours just to cast your ballot. I I, I just think it's uh, reprehensible what they're doing. But that's what Republicans do.
2: Yeah. Well oh, that's that's brilliant, Donna, and you know I salute your activism. I would add one small thing to it, and that is that we shouldn't have companies funding elections at all. And so we all need to be reaching out to our elected representatives, particularly the Democrats who represent us, because they're more likely to do something about it, and say we need major electoral reform, which is HR one, SB one, this this first piece of legislation, the For the People Act. We need this thing to be passed. And that means we've got to blow up the filibuster because the Republicans will block it. Which means we need to talk to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, among others, and say end the filibuster. And and call the call their offices at 202-224-3121. And just say, you know, it's, we need to end the filibuster so that we can get some good government legislation passed. Because, Donna, you're attacking the problem head on. And it's just great that you're doing it. But the cause of the problem now is this: the Supreme Court decisions in this, and legislation that makes it possible. And uh, we need to go after that, too. Thank you, Donna. And, and good on you. I am, I am so impressed. Thank you so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your thoughts and mine <laughs> in just a moment. Stick around.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
2: On the Science Revolution this week is Dr. Michael Mann on the new climate war. He shares how fossil fuel companies have waged a 30-year campaign to deflect blame and responsibility and delay action on climate change. Dr. Eric Feigelding drops by warning us the coronavirus could be a thermonuclear pandemic. He'll also talk about the new COVID variants and what he would do differently. Severine Fleming from Greenhorns is here about food security, regenerative agriculture, and the hidden value of local food. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. You're listening to Tom Hartman. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, thanks for uh, listening to my call. Listen, I just want to say that there are remedies to all this malarquity that's going
5: on. There, You know, it's in the U.S. Constitution when they decide to use the laws that are that our forefathers gave us, this will be over. Threatening government officials of the United States is a federal, is a felony offense under federal law, and it's actually a five-year statute of limitation. So I don't care if she was a congresswoman; it, it applies to every citizen, and it's uh, U.S. Code eighteen. Uh, 18- 875, 876. And, you know, until mm-hmm. somebody gets killed, I guess they're not going to take it serious. Oh, well, that's right. Somebody already did get it killed, and they're still not taking it serious. And one more quick point. You know why Trump walked out of office like, like nothing was even bothering him? Is because nobody's doing anything. He should be tried for treason, cut, you know, cut and dry. Yeah. Try to overthrow the I'm country. i with you. And, you know, if that if they feel that taking a Twitter account is, uh, I think George Washington would uh, had a little bit more than taking away his Twitter account away from him. He would have had a little, you know, he would have uh, executed him right on spot. But Tom, I love you guys, and uh, they're coming after us next. If if this this is all a symbolic impeachment, he's not going to get voted out because you got traitors and you know both sides really not yeah. not a lot well you know a lot more well, we'll more see. so on the republican we'll side they're... but until they take their their oath of office with the genuine you know oath of office then you know same old same old but i love you guys in other words, care, until will be donating yeah. later
2: ciao ciao thank you john in other words uh, and thanks for listening to kpfk in other words until we you know these these guys take their oath of office seriously barbara in sun city arizona hey barbara what's on your mind thanks for watching free speech tv
1: hi honey um okay Somebody needs to Google Neon Revolt. He is a big QAnon influencer who turns out to be a guy named Robert something or other who's a screenwriter. Um, He lives in New Jersey, and he's a big influence under Neon Revolt. Just Google it. But um, the gal who was caught in the Capitol, who wants to go to Mexico, was at a rally And Dana Rohrabacher, I am openly an agent of Russia, former, was he a congressman from California? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Was at the rally. So I'm just kind of going into who are these people? Everybody's like, oh, it was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's still alive. I mean, let's get real. There are actually really people. It could be Putin. It could be, I mean, Dana Rohrabacher at a QAnon rally with a woman who was in the Capitol and then this disgruntled screenwriter whose agenda was to create crazy stuff to get back at the fact that he wasn't successful as a screenwriter and lives in New Jersey now, which, interestingly enough, was kind of um, mentioned by Trump, once that it could be a guy in his basement in New Jersey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who came up with a crazy idea that they were trying to put on Trump. I
2: I, I think as we as we dig deeper and deeper into this, Barbara, we're going to find that there are these webs of connections that are really rather distressing. Barbara, thank you. Um, I, I I don't know about the specific person that you uh, that you mentioned, and I can't endorse that. Um, but uh, yeah, Dana Dana Rohrabacher has long been problematic. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For our book club today, we're reading from David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. This is from the introduction. In his speech at the dedication of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., September 24, 2016, President Barack Obama delivered what he termed a, quote, clear-eyed view of a tragic and triumphant history of black Americans in the United States. He spoke of a history that is central to the larger American story, one that is both contradictory and extraordinary. He likened the African-American experience to the infinite depths of Shakespeare and scripture. The, quote, embrace of truth as best we can know it, said the president, is, quote, where real patriotism lies. Naming some of the major pivots of the country's past, Obama wrapped up his central theme in a remarkable sentence about the Civil War era. Quote, we've buttoned up our union blues to join the fight for our freedom. We've railed against injustice for decade upon decade, a lifetime of struggle and progress and enlightenment that we see etched in Frederick Douglass's mighty leonine gaze. End quote. How Americans react to Douglass's gaze, indeed how we gaze back at his visage, and more important, how we read him, appropriate him, or engage his legacies, informs how we use our past to determine who we are. Douglas's life and writing emerged from nearly the full scope of the 19th century, representative of the best and the worst in the American spirit. Douglas constantly probed the ironies of America's contradictions over slavery and race. Few Americans used Shakespeare and the Bible to comprehend his story and that of his people as much as Douglas. And there may be no better example of an American radical patriot than the slave who became a lyrical prophet of freedom, natural rights. And human equality. Obama channeled Douglas in his dedication speech, knowingly or not, so do many people today. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, a slave, in Talbot County, Maryland, in February 1818, the future Frederick Douglass was the son of Harriet Bailey, one of five daughters of Betsy Bailey, and with some likelihood his mother's white owner. He saw his mother for the last time in 1825, though he hardly knew her. She died the following year. Douglas lived 20 years as a slave and nearly nine years as a fugitive slave subject to recapture. From the 1840s to his death in 1895, he attained international fame as an abolitionist, editor, orator of almost unparalleled signature, and the author of three autobiographies that are classics of the genre. As a public man, he began his abolitionist career two decades before America would divide and fight a civil war over slavery that he openly welcomed. Douglas was born in a backwater of the slave society of the South, just as steamboats appeared in bays and on American rivers, and before the telegraph, the railroad, and the rotary press changed human mobility and consciousness. He died after the emergence of electric lights, the telephone, and the invention of the phonograph. The renewed orator and traveler loved and used most of these elements of modernity and technology. Douglas was the most photographed American of the 19th century, explained in this book, and especially by the intrepid research of three other scholars I write upon. Although it can never really be measured, he may also have been, along with Mark Twain, the most widely traveled American public figure of his century. By the 1890s, in sheer miles and countless number of speeches, he had few rivals as a lecturer in the golden age of oratory. It is likely that more americans heard frederick Douglass speak than any other public figure of his time indeed to see or hear Douglass became a kind of wonder of the american world he struggled as well with the pleasures and perils of fame as much as anyone else in his century with the possible exceptions of general ulysses s grant or pt barnum douglas's dilemma with fame was a matter of decades not merely of moments and fraught with racism the orator and writer lived to see and interpret black emancipation to work actively for women's rights long before they were achieved, to realize the civil rights triumphs and tragedies of Reconstruction, and to witness and contribute to America's economic and international expansion in the Gilded Age. He lived to the age of lynching and Jim Crow laws when America collapsed into retreat from the real victories and revolutions in race relations that he had helped to win. He played a pivotal role in America's second founding out of the apocalypse of the Civil War, and he very much wished to see himself as a founder and defender of the Second American Republic. In one lifetime of anti-slavery, literary, and political activism, Douglas was many things, and the set of apparent paradoxes makes his story so attractive to, to biographers as well as to so many constituencies today. He was a radical thinker and a proponent of classic 19th century political liberalism. At different times, he hated and loved his country. He was a ferocious critic of the United States and all its hypocrisies, but also, after emancipation, became a government bureaucrat, a diplomat, and a voice for territorial expansion. He strongly believed in self-reliance and demanded an activist interventionist government at all levels to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect black citizens against terror and discrimination. Douglass was a serious constitutional thinker, and few Americans have ever analyzed race with more poignancy and nuance than this mostly self-taught genius with words. He was a radical editor, writer, and activist. The book Frederick Douglass by David Blight. Welcome back, Nicole in Memphis, Tennessee. Hey Nicole, what's on your mind?
0: Hi Tom. I just wanted to say I think we ought to coin this new wing of the Republican Party as the Neo-Confederate Party, um, because Mm -hmm. they do assess Confederate views. They fly the Confederate flag. Um, And I wanted to make one point, too, about uh, the seeds of racism in the minds of white supremacists. Um, In the South, I grew up with hearing the belief that not only... Um, the belief that um, slave traders actually did slaves a favor by bringing them here, which is a horrible right. thought, um, and they actually resent black people for wanting rights, and they really think that black people should be beholden to them for having brought them here in the first place. So I just oh, want I, re- people- I
2: remember Nicole when 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 Louise and I moved to Georgia. Uh, we'd never lived in the south before we moved to atlanta and when when my uh, son who at the time was seven or eight years old came home from school and and, and i was like well you know what did you learn in school today and he was like well we we, we studied the war of northern aggression and I'm like what anyhow back to you nicole
0: well i just wanted to make that point because i think you know a lot of times we talk about you know the you know what racism is feeded in and i think sometimes people really don't get how deep these beliefs go you know how far they go back and how deeply they're held and a lot of times i think people don't even realize that those thoughts are in their head so.
2: yeah yeah no it's it's like it's the air you breathe in the south it's it's uh, it's in the soil um and, and say,
0: uh memphis has ahead. come a long way i want to say too that memphis has come a very long way and it's um fight for um, equality in the city and uh, this city went heavily for Biden and I'm so happy for
2: that. Mm -hmm. Yeah same same thing with you know the town where Louise and I lived uh, 13 years I think in Atlanta Um, uh, yes spot on. Thank you very much Uh, you know thank you for the call uh, Nicole well said. Susan in Phoenix Arizona. Hey Susan what's up?
0: Yeah I was just thinking about when they were talking about free speech and what came back to me is what happened during McCarthyism and how they demonized communists so badly. Today they don't even have a voice at all. They silenced You're them right. by how they handled McCarthyism. And it might be a, a, a strategy that the Democrats could use, putting them on trial in front of in front of all of Congress and eliminating I, I all of them. You know, I don't think...
2: Because somebody else did something that was very, very wrong. I don't think that we should be doing that. Um, McCarthy, yes, you know his, his his witch hunts and the communists and the State Department and all that kind of thing. Although I would say that the reason you're not hearing from communists today is because, you know, the communist experiment in the Soviet Union failed. And, you know, there hasn't been a really successful communist country pretty much anywhere that has been able to balance communism at the level of a country with some semblance of, of freedom and a free press. I mean, even Cuba has struggled with this. Uh, Louise and I spent a week down there a couple of years ago. And, you know, they've done a lot of good things, but still, you know, it's this delicate balancing act and they're having to, you know, they're starting to embrace some programs. But but I totally get what you're saying. And, then, and uh, yeah. go ahead.
0: There's also another um, group that we've silenced, and that is wasn't Al Qaeda recruiting in America for a while, and the FBI yeah, came along and took down all their websites and uh, their YouTube videos.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 the corporations got you know got in on that act. Yes. Uh, absolutely, Susan. Yeah. I think that using the heavy hand of government. And I realize that that's a favorite phrase of the right. But nonetheless, you know, government is the only agency in our society that has the authority, the legal authority to put a gun in your face and pull the trigger.
0: Well, the, the,
2: you know, using that hand of government to do things that can be done without the power of government. I would always go for the without the power of government first. And that's what we're seeing right now. But I totally get what you're saying. Jim in Voorheesville, New York. What's up?
5: Okay, Tom, my question to you is, do you have any information or knowledge about whether the voters of a specific state whose representative or senators sympathize with the extreme right wing can be recalled by the voters of that state?
2: Depends on the state laws. D- different states have different laws. But generally speaking, well, you'd have to look on a state-by-state basis. I have no idea what the law is in New York with regard to, you know, your ability to to recall or or whatever the uh, you know word might be used there for your elected officials but you know at the end okay. of the day it's uh, you've got an election coming in a year and a half you've got a pri- you've got yeah. primaries starting in about six months and uh, you know these people are going to stand for re-election they're going to stand in their primaries and republican voters are going to be deciding whether their party is going to be the party of fascist crazies or whether their party is going to go back to being the party of Dwight Eisenhower that was at least, you know, somewhat embraced by Americans. And, uh, you know, it's a serious issue. And Republicans need to, particularly Republican voters, need to be taking this very seriously. This is the Tom Hartman Programme. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is from the introduction, Coming to America. I carry something special in my wallet. My cousin, jean pierre gave it to me before my first day working for President Barack Obama in the White House. Remember this, he asked, as he handed me an old snapshot. The corners creased, the colors washed out. I gasped. I had forgotten the trip our extended family, me and my cousins, had taken to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1982, just before I turned eight. There we were, seated on the base of the railing in front of the South Lawn of the White House, with the Truman Balcony in the far background. Jeannot gave me the photo to remind me of the pride my family takes in my success of all of the people in the Haitian American community I carry on my shoulders. I kept that photo with me from then on. Every day when I got money out of that wallet for a cup of tea or a bagel at the cafeteria in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but glance at the image of that timid, skinny young girl sandwiched between my much older cousins. Back then, I was so shy that the nuns who taught kindergarten at my Catholic school called my mother in to say that they were worried about me. She doesn't play with other children, they said. She just keeps to herself. Over the years, I worked hard to overcome that. You've made us all proud, Janot told me code for how unlikely it was inconceivable really that anyone from our family could get to the white house my haitian american father and mother a new york city taxi driver at home health care aide, didn't closely follow american politics they were more likely to discuss the viciously oppressive dictator dynasty of francois papa doc duvalier and his son jean-claude baby doc duvalier who ruled haiti from 1957 to 1986 than any american president Like many immigrants, they came here to find a better life for their children. I was proof that their struggle had been worth it. As an openly gay woman of color, I have also had my own struggles entering the world of politics, which even now can feel like a boys club. Despite the record number of women who ran and won in the 2018 US midterm elections, women occupy less than 23% of the seats in Congress, even though more than half of the population is women but when i was in the white house i was usually too busy to think about how i had gone from being that meek schoolgirl with braids to the confident woman in a crisp tailored pantsuit who worked as obama's regional political director in the office of political affairs i was the eyes and ears of the president of the united states in 12 northeastern states from maryland to maine the political affairs wing has three offices in a corner on the first floor of the eeob The Eisenhower Executive Office Building is a beautiful historic building close to the White House's West Wing. The West Wing is home to the Oval office where the U.S. President works. The first time I flashed my security clearance badge to the sharply dressed Marine standing guard at the double door entrance and walked into the West Wing, I remember looking around and thinking, this is so small. It looks so much bigger on TV. As a campaign operative for Senator John Edwards in 2007 and 8, I binge watched the NBC 1999 to 2006 series starring Martin Sheen as a fictional American president named Josiah Bartlett. Still, it's hard not to be awed. I also felt a constant sense of responsibility because I was a black woman working for the first black American president. When you work at the White House, whether it's for a Democrat or a Republican, you have to put in a 12 to 15 hour workday or more. There's a reason why most people don't last a whole four-year term, and under President Donald Trump, turnover among his staff has occurred at an historically high rate. It's an absolute joy, but it's also a heavy lift. I like to get there between 7 and 7.30 in the morning to prepare for our first meeting at 9 o'clock, and I rarely left before 9 p.m. I would go home to my furnished basement apartment in a semi-sketchy part of town in Northeast Washington. I had taken a pay cut to work in the White House. My place was cold, dark, and dreary, but I knew I didn't need more than a place to crash. A good night's sleep was never a given. There were plenty of times that my boss emailed me at 1 or 2 in the morning expecting me to get back to him ASAP, and I did. In those days, I walked around with a BlackBerry phone, the preferred device for politicos for White House work in one hand and, in the other hand, another BlackBerry issued by the Democratic National Committee for political work. Taxpayers did not pay for President Obama to do fundraisers or other political events, so having different phones for different purposes kept us honest and out of trouble. Because I was so intent on doing things the right way, I even carried a third phone, a personal one, in my pants pocket for calls and emails with family and friends. This was not a requirement, I just wanted to be extra mindful. The stakes were too big to make a mistake. The pressure was high, but I was proud of my role and wouldn't hide it. When phone number three rang, and I would tell the person on the other end I had just gotten off Air Force One of the president, or I was about to make a trip with Vice President Joe Biden on Air Force Two, they would say, "Corrine, listen to you, you don't even realize how cool your job is. Getting involved in politics can be intimidating. If you weren't participating in a debate club or Young Democrats of America or model United Nations by the time you finished high school, I know it can feel like you have no choice in politics. That's why I'm writing this book. I am proof that that's not true. I was a late bloomer you hear stories about folks whose passions and talents were already obvious by the time they were in kindergarten i am not like that i first ran for office at columbia university and i wasn't drawn to a career in politics until after graduate school just how little did my family discuss american politics growing up meet michael dukakis the first time i encountered politics was late on a thursday night in july 1988 i was 13 years old my sister Esther was six, and my brother Daniel, four. My siblings and I were curled up on my parents' queen size bed watching the television that sat in the corner of my mother's wooden vanity dresser. Moving Forward by Corinne Jean Pierre. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, uh, Dave, in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, Tom.
4: Thanks for taking my call. Uh, in the early 80s, I was in my early 20s in the military. I really didn't pay too much attention to politics. And you talk a lot about the Reagan revolution and all that. If I'm not mistaken, man, the Democrats had control of the House and the Senate. What role did they play in the two laws that Reagan passed? He passed, what, 81 tax cut in 86? And they would have had to have some Democratic party. So uh, i was just curious. You might have addressed it in your books. I haven't read any of your books, but I listen to you talk about that all the time, and I just wondered.
2: There was a substantial amount of Democratic complicity in the Reagan revolution, Dave, and it's something that shouldn't be whitewashed or ignored and it has continued to this day. I mean, we've got a couple of Democrats right now that want the Republicans to continue to have the power to veto any kind of Democratic legislation, which is just like bizarre to me. But to cut them a little bit of slack, you know, you're old enough to remember 1980, so am I, when Reagan came into office the, the country was in a difficult time. We had just been through a period of severe inflation that was caused by the by two oil shocks, two Arab oil embargoes, and so that inflation was creeping through. You had all these hostages who had been held in Iran for a year now, and, and, and the country was feeling kind of down, and Reagan was like, I'm gonna make everything better, and he was such a good salesman, and he had such a great smile, and he knew how to speak, and he was such a good actor. Uh, he knew how to play the role of president really, really well. And there were a lot of people who thought, okay, well, let's give it a chance. Maybe he's right. Maybe the supply side stuff has, you know, makes some sense. Let's let's try it out. And, you know, I think it's it's a lot easier uh, 40 years later to look back and criticize those folks. But at the time and, and not only that, Reagan had, you know, much of the media solidly behind him. And, you know, this was before the era of Fox News. But people were hopeful that something could, could reinvigorate America. We were also coming off the, the tail end of the World War II boom, where uh, you know a lot of America, the American economy was uh, somewhat goosed by the remnants of all the spending that happened in World War II, massive government spending and the Eisenhower spending, but also the, the fact that many of our competitors, uh, particularly Japan at that point in time, but also Germany, in 1980, were just, you know, they were just getting their feet back underneath them, and they were really starting to to compete with us in a serious way. So the country was being torn in a bunch of different directions. But, you know, you're right, Dave, and I need to acknowledge that. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Marilyn in Sun City West. Hey, Marilyn, what's up?
3: I just want your comment on my perception. Being the resident Canadian, though I've lived here for 10 years, when I moved down here, I think the U.S. has an inherent Problem that I don't know if they'll ever get over, and it has to do with rebellion. My perception is that when they left England in the 1700s, they were like a child that was telling their parents, I'm done with your rules, I don't want to live here anymore, I'm going to go out and do whatever I want and leave me alone. When Canada kind of decided that they also didn't want to be totally under that roof, although they still are. They were more of the child that said, you know what, we appreciate what you've done, mom and dad, but it's time for me to take responsibility for myself and be on my own. But they didn't have that angry rebellion that the people in the U.S., and I think the Republicans still do, of I'm going to do what I want, nobody's going to tell me, blah, blah, blah. And I just think that that has never left, and I don't know
0: if it ever will.
2: Well, you know, it's an interesting point, Marilyn. The reality is that, well, first of all, most of the people who engaged in the revolution, in the rebellion and revolution, had been on this continent for generations. Europeans had been on this continent for, uh, what, well over 200 years at that point, or in that neighborhood of 200 years. And secondly, the United Kingdom completely dominated the economy of the American colonies. It was illegal, for example, to make fine clothing. It was illegal to make complex machinery. It was illegal to make watches. You know, anything that could be manufactured in England had to be manufactured in England, or you could go to jail The British East India Company exercised monopoly control over tea and a whole lot of other things. Clothing was another one. You know, I mean, this is what Gandhi rebelled against. I mean, this wasn't just unique to the 1770s. England was doing the same thing to India in the 1950s. It was illegal to make cloth, which is why Gandhi had his spinning wheel. It was a point of rebellion. So I think we have to keep that in context. But Marilyn, thank you. Thank you so much for the call. It is something to consider. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Geraldyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who helped make this show work for you. And thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it.